Welcome to another episode of Given Hell Brigham. How are you doing tonight, Jeff? Doing well, Garrett. How are you? I'm doing good. I uh, apologize if the audio is a little different. I'm not in my normal closet studio today. I'm out in the living room, um, but you know, it's another good week. Um, well, prospects for college football happening on time are not so good, but uh, it's kind, of kind of a bad week from a sports perspective. I mean, I guess it's not a sports perspective. I did watch highlights of a Braves interest squad game today, and it was almost like real baseball. Ozzie Albies, like first spring training-like game against their own team, went all out to try and dive for a, a little pop fly into like shallow right field. So it made me feel like it was baseball season, so that was great. But then after that happened this morning, man, it was like a barrage of bad football news. Yeah, I, off. I didn't even realize until I like flipped on ESPN just to look at because like the MLS tournament thing was coming back. I've never watched MLS soccer in my life, but that's where I'm at with all of this lack of sports. And I married into a soccer family, so I'm trying to – I'm becoming more accustomed to it and understanding it better so it makes more sense. It's more entertaining to watch. But I didn't realize that the basketball tournament thing was still going and it already started. Oh, they, I didn't realize that either. No, I mean, I remember I feel like last year, maybe it was just because I don't think Team Fredette isn't in it this year. Yeah, no. Because it seemed like it was so publicized last year as being a big thing, this fun tournament in the middle of the summer, like after the NBA was over. And now apparently it's been going for like a week, but I haven't heard a single thing about it. You would think that this would be the perfect time to like publicize the heck out of that, but. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it was I on it was going. ESPN, right? Like they're broadcasting it, but I still would, yeah. I'm Maybe that's what it is. Normally we would see a bunch of commercials on ESPN because we're watching ESPN, but who the heck is turning into ESPN right now? There's nothing to watch. Yeah, we're just sitting so we, there. We, we missed all the marketing. That's probably, I mean, I did watch the Cornhole Championship last weekend <laughs> after, the, uh, after the hot dog eating contest. Man, it is it is dark days in sports world. Man, it's better than at the beginning of all of this when I was watching Russian minor league hockey because on YouTube because that was still going. See, you're way more dedicated to I you know a need to find sports. I've just been watching conspiracy videos on YouTube nonstop for like four months. It started with just like conspiracy videos about like coronavirus and Trump and all that stuff, and it is now. I'm running out of conspiracies, so it's deteriorated. I'm I'm back into the moon landing. I'm back into, you know, the Sandy Hook. Was it a hoax? I mean, all sorts of crazy stuff that is just preposterously untrue. But I've got nothing better to do. The I think we could probably do a whole segment next week, maybe because we're already five minutes into the show about conspiracy theories that are actually true. Maybe that'll be our mailbag question for the week because we are okay. desperately running out of sports content to talk about. But it's getting tough. let's get into this week. We have our Hellion of the Week. And today, I was just sent someone, I sent our dear friend Jay Mace over to Brock Day. So if you don't follow Brock Day, his handle is at 2TWODays, D-A-Z-E. And he, his family owns the Days Market on Canyon Road in Provo, so just up the street from Velvet Stadium. And we just want to give him the Hellion of the Week because as stuff, has, like people, supplies have been running low. I have seen him help person after person get the supplies that they need for whatever food thing that they have. They just want to make something. I've seen him offer, you know, people, seen a couple of people who like had twins and couldn't find any formula for them. And so he was like, Hey, we're getting a shipment in tomorrow. How much do you need? I'll set it aside for you. All that sort of stuff. So he's just been going way out of his way to help people. And I think it's awesome. And you know, it's, 
I mean, I don't know that I've ever really shopped at a local grocery store before because they don't really exist. So it's kind of cool that they're still doing well, still hanging around. And if you're in the Provo area, go do your grocery shopping at Days Market and Brock will take care of you. I think he – didn't he give toilet paper to Coach Mateos? I mean, yes. when, when Mateos – kind of at the beginning of all of this, I remember the tweet because I laughed. I think I even laughed out loud. He tweeted, and then there was one with the last roll of toilet paper remaining in his apartment. And it was Brock who helped him out, which is incredible. So good for Brock. Good for local uh, local grocers, man. So I grew up, actually, um, one of my best friends growing up, his dad was a store manager at Albertsons. Now, Albertsons is, you know, they were uh, a little bigger than a day's market in Provo, but they were mostly regional. I mean, out here, out west. Uh, I think they're, you know, Albertsons Stadium in Boise, right? That's where Boise State plays. That's where, where they were headquartered. And he was the store manager at an Albertsons. And I kind of just have a soft spot in my heart for these little grocery stores that aren't, you know, Costco or Walmart. And... Yeah, so Brock Day. I mean, incredible stuff. It's not easy. It's like shocking. You think a grocery store is fairly simple to run, but there's a lot of crap that goes into it. And I respect the heck out of any of those guys, especially running a local market like that where they have to source all of the food that they're going to stock. It isn't just, you know, it doesn't just show up on a truck like a Walmart distribution center would just sends it, right? Like they've got to go out, they've got to find it, they've got to secure contracts, they've got to do all of everything. It's impressive. It's a ton of work. Brock Day, very deserving. Uh, recipient of the Hellion of the Week this week. So we will get you something sent your way. Um, some of the we have lots of swag now. We have a ton on the Teespring store. If you haven't checked it out yet, um, you know we'll put the link in the description. We've got shirts available. Jeff has a ton of. How many stickers did you order from Sticker Mule? Uh, it was Sticker Week on Sticker Mule, and so I was getting like. I kept getting deals for like 10 days straight and then I could get 50 stickers of a different cut for like 15, 20 bucks. And so I just kept ordering stickers. And so I think I'm looking at my desk right now. I think I probably have three or 400 remaining and I'm sending out, I, I think we've sent out 20, 25 different envelopes full of stickers so far. Uh, so we had a ton to begin with. We've sent out a bunch and we still have a bunch left and looking forward to sending it out. No charge. People have asked if there's a charge. If you know, if you guys want a sticker, uh, people have asked me, you know, what, how to cover shipping and and what we would charge. Nothing. Like we'll just send it out. The only thing we ask is subscribe, leave us a rating, and and share, uh, and we'll send out, you know, whatever. So there's a ton left. And DM people- me your address, and we'll get something out as soon as we can. I bought stamps for the first time since my mission. I was using old forever stamps that still had. Uh, I think everybody had these stamps. The Forever Stamps had a Liberty Bell in like 2010. Yep. And I was still using those. Um, so I've had to buy stamps since then for the first time since like 2009, 2000. Did the glue still work or did you have to tape it on? Uh, it was still good. It was, I mean, it was close, but it was still good. Um, and so anyway, I got a, a new book of stamps. I have no idea what they cost anymore, but I've got a new book of stamps. And I'm ready to just send out a bunch of stickers. Awesome. And we've seen a couple of pictures get popped up and, you know, people posting of different, you know, stick them on their laptop or the water bottle, whatever. So we are happy to see it. And we've seen people start posting pictures in their shirts. Um, so Teespring has started getting those out for us. So we're slowly sp- spreading the brand and, you know, we're happy that you are helping us, you know, give them hell. Um, so what do we have? I'm excited to hear about your quarantine kitchen. Mine is 
an easy one. We got another easy one this week. Oh, did you end up buying a toaster oven? After? I, I did not. I need to. I went and looked, and COVID has ruined Amazon Prime. It used to really mean two-day shipping. And even before COVID, two-day kind of started to turn into three-day on a lot of things, and it was kind of bothering me with Amazon. But since COVID, like, they just can't commit to two-day on anything. Sometimes it happens, but they can't commit to anything, right? And when I saw that shipping was like four or five days out, I got discouraged. And after like, you know, two or three minutes of looking, I was like, nope, I'll look tomorrow. I never looked. I need to get a toaster oven. Uh, I've had people this week, uh, probably five or six people since the podcast last week that have DM'd me or texted me to say, hey, Garrett's right. You need a toaster oven. I feel so, so validated. Yeah, you should. And so it's a real thing. I need to do it. I just haven't gotten around to it yet. Did did the picture of the marshmallows that I sent you, the s'mores, win you over? That was incredible. That looked awesome. So like that was the, the perfect s'more. Yeah, I'd, I'd never tried that before. And as my wife did it last night, and she sat down like, when did you make s'mores? Like, I didn't, you know, you didn't go light the barbecue. You know, didn't have charcoal. I didn't hear you turn on the stove because we have a gas stove. She's like, oh, I did it in the toaster oven. So that's awesome. Add it to the list of things. Um, so I'll go first. Mine, I don't know if you've ever done this maybe you have or if you guys are big sausage eaters at your house but we love like i love sausage and especially like kielbasa like polish sausages we eat them a ton at our house and one thing that we've started doing and this is super easy is we will just cut up like you can cut up carrots or basically any like harder vegetable like brussels sprouts carrots potatoes um you know any hard vegetable like that and then we will just slice up some kielbasa and throw it on a pan with some seasonings and just stick it in the oven for like 35 minutes. And once the fat starts to melt out of the sausage and gets that kicked through, then, I mean, you've got stuff cooking and fat from sausage. There's nothing better than that. And so, I mean, since we only have a toddler, sometimes we'll be very lazy. You just put the pan straight on the oven and stand over the oven and eat it with the fork. Don't have any dishes to clean up after either. And so it's, you can do that with a lot of things. Um, like I've done fajitas that way where instead of, you know, dealing with the pan hot thing, just cut the chicken and toss the chicken in bell peppers or whatever, throw it on a sheet and throw it in the oven because I don't want to deal with anything else. And so I went from toaster oven last week to sheet pan meals this week in the oven. We're going for, we've, we're going for simple the last couple of weeks here while you are out here constructing barbecue lasagnas. I I am getting ready. I haven't, it's a little bit of a cop-out. I have not made my uh, quarantine kitchen item yet. I will be making it this weekend. But before I get into that, do you know who is like the queen of sheet pan cooking? It's Zach Wilson's mom, Lisa. Really? She does all kinds. She's always posting. So on her Instagram, um, she posts a lot of you know workout stuff. She teaches a dance fit class, and, and she does a lot of that stuff. But she'll also just post a lot of the recipes that she's cooking, and it's really cool. She's got a big family, right? I think there's five, six kids in the Wilson house, so it's a big family. And she's always cooking healthy recipes that you can cook in mass, and it, it like blows me away how many of them are done on a sheet pan. And she does I, – I remember off the top of my head – she does cheeseburgers just on a street pan, on a sheet pan. Instead of going out and grilling the cheeseburgers, she'll just throw, you know, eight patties on a sheet pan, put the cheese on it, and then put it in the oven. Takes it out after, I don't know how long, 10 minutes. And they come out, and the cheese is like, I don't know, it's like integrated with the burger. Like, it's all just like melted together, and it almost looks like a Juicy Lucy. 
it's really kind of intriguing. So check it out. I think her new Instagram handle, I got to look it up, is uh, like what's new with Lisa Lou or something like that. But she is all about sheet pan cooking. So if Garrett's got you intrigued, Lisa Wilson is the place to go for more more sheet pan recipes. Yeah, what's new Lisa Lou, L-O-O. So there you go. I mean, a little little shout out to every quarterback or every every BYU fan's favorite quarterback mom, Lisa. Like, we're glad you're part of the BYU family, and we're glad that you're sharing your sheet pan recipes with us. So on to my barbecue lasagna. It is exactly what it sounds. If you have leftover brisket, leftover pulled pork, you know, uh, I, I like to smoke chuck roast. If you have leftover roast that you don't, you know, have marinated with onions and carrots and all that stuff, I mean, maybe you have it that way anyways, I don't know. Leftover meat that you have smoked and you don't know what to do with it. This is the best recipe. It's inspired. uh, There is a guy out of Denver, GQ Barbecue is what he is on both Instagram and on YouTube. And he has done this recipe. I, I can't remember. He put a video out three or four years ago. And I, I've done it a couple of times since then, and I'm planning on doing it this weekend. Uh, we had a ton of pulled pork uh, for Fourth of July, so I've got just a bunch of pulled pork left over. And essentially, what you do is you take lasagna noodles, like you would if you're making regular lasagna, and you, you know, that's your your base layer, obviously, just like you would with lasagna. And then you just take a bunch of your leftover brisket, your leftover pork, your leftover whatever you have, put them together. It doesn't matter mix it in with a little bit of barbecue sauce, lay that down on top of the lasagna noodles, then do some cheese. Uh, You can do, you know, like ricotta cheese like you would with a regular lasagna, but I like to make it barbecue. And I do like mozzarella cheese or provolone cheese or American cheese, something that's going to melt really well over this meat. And then you just layer it up and you do your meat, you do some barbecue sauce, cheese, another layer of noodles, meat, barbecue sauce, cheese, noodles. You do that three or four times, top it off with some Parmesan at the top, it bakes together like a lasagna, but it has all of the wonderful taste of backyard barbecue. It's awesome. So I will be making that this weekend. I will make sure to put pictures out somewhere so that people could see it. But barbecue lasagna doesn't get talked about. A lot of people make things, you know, pulled pork nachos, and those are awesome with their leftover pulled pork. This is just something different. And it's really, really good. So I would encourage everybody who has leftover meat, doesn't know what to do with it because you have a family of four and you cooked a 12-pound roast, this is something you can do with all that leftover pork. I can get into that. Before we move on, you guys can't see Garrett, but Garrett normally has a really thick beard. And he has shaved that beard. And he has an absolutely glorious mustache. Like People really you really need to share this with the world. Like this must, it's thick, it's full, it's symmetrical. There's a lot to like about this mustache. You know, I was bored. I got out of the shower and I was like, yeah, I need to trim the beard up. And I was like, you know what? Let's just like, no one's going to see me anyway. Let's go for the mustache. I've, I've done Movember before, but let's just cut the mustache and see what happens. And I came downstairs and my daughter was like, dad dad it was like kind of she recognized it was me but she was very apprehensive and didn't want to like give me a hug in the morning when she saw me and was kind of confused so i'm glad she got the stranger danger thing down early um but she uh yeah we're going with the mustache for a few weeks and we'll see what happens um before we move on from quarantine kitchen 
we got a tweet in our inbox from, you know, we shouldn't even talk about this because it's from an egg account, meaning, you know, somebody who doesn't even, they don't even have a picture and their name is the Donald and they're following 45 people. So I'm pretty, it's obviously a troll account. And, but somehow they joined in 2012. He said, more sports, less food. You know, Donald, we would like to do that. But in case you have not been aware of the current world events, there's no sports going on. So we don't really have a whole lot to talk about. The offseason is already bad enough as it is. But now we don't even know if we're going to get an in-season. So if you want to give us more ideas, then there we go. And uh, we would definitely cover more sports if there were more sports to cover. I mean, no disrespect. We're glad you're here. We're glad you're listening. But it's really hard to find sports content right now. Now, we're going to do our best. I think we've got a pretty full docket that we're going to talk about today. Uh, but it's really tough. And it gets, it, man, it's almost really, it's really discouraging. Today's news is really discouraging because we've been getting into our preseason preview. We're looking at every position group. We're going to do more of that today. But knowing that this preseason might last uh, we might be talking preseason for the next six months. God, it's depressing. It's really, really depressing. Six months, maybe eight months. I mean, it could be a long time. And it's really getting tough. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we can get into it of the issues. We are going to get into it with the issues of a potential spring season. But before we jump into that, we do have an offer that's going to go out. Um, so talk to us about Hinkley Ropati. It might go out. Uh, Definitely a player that is on my radar that we're watching really closely. Hinkley Ropati out of Cerritos Junior College in California. He is a member of the church. He's a return missionary, and he played his true freshman season in Cerritos. Uh, as far as I know, he doesn't have any any uh, college offers right now, but watching him on his highlight film, the dude runs with a kind of violence that I don't think really exists on the roster right now. He, he's, he lacks the top end speed that you, you know, you would look for in a guy like Devonte Henry Cole. He's a little bit, he's built, he's a physical runner. He's going to try to overpower and run through tackles rather than avoid tackles, uh, which BYU's had a lot of success with backs like that in the past. And the way that Ropati runs, man, I mean, he's just violent. He runs like a linebacker. Like it, it, it's really kind of intriguing to watch. Uh, I was telling Garrett before the show, uh, as we were watching his highlights, he reminds me of Jamal Williams. Now, that's he's not going to go out and be BYU's all-time leading rusher. He's not Jamal Williams. I want to be very clear about that. But the way that Jamal ran, Jamal, uh, I mean, he was fast for a BYU running back, but he lacked the top-end speed that the you know the top backs in the country have. But what, what, what made Jamal so special was that he was willing to fight for every yard. I mean, he was just hard to tackle. If they did tackle him, he always seemed to fall forward for that extra yard or two. Uh, he sought contact out and was not afraid of, of anything, right? I mean, he ran like he was a 250-pound fullback, but he was, he was not. He was Jamal. He was, what, 195? That's a little bit how Ropati runs. He doesn't have the quickness that Jamal has, and I don't think he has even the speed that Jamal had, but he runs that way. It's a little bit like Lopini Katoa, but more violent. They're very it's similar a little build. Like if you just saw the tape side by side, you would not probably not be surprised if it was like, oh, I looked at Katoa's tape from American Fork High School, and he ended up at a JC first. In, in got, so their build is very, very similar. 
and that's who he reminded me of. But with that added aggressiveness that Jamal had. Yeah, he just has an attitude about him. So watching him really closely, uh, he's a junior college guy, which means he could, uh, and, and knowing his situation, he could theoretically enroll in January. It depends on numbers and scholarships. Uh, he may not happen. It may not happen in January. He may get pushed until September, or sorry, until summer, I guess. Should he should he commit? But I know that BYU's been in contact. I know that he fits in at BYU culturally and all that stuff. And I think he's a good enough player that he would help the team in 2021. So a name to watch, a um, little inside information. That's the kind of stuff that we have on our message boards over at Cougar Sports Insider. Uh, those subscribers there, we talked about Ropati uh, earlier this week. Um, so that's the kind of information that you get there. Subscribe today, Cougar Sports Insider. First month is only a dollar right now to get a little bit of a, just a taste to see if it's the right content for you to get you through quarantine and into hopefully a football season at some point. Uh, the sports news may be a little bit dry, but we continually push out content. It's more than just recruiting. There's a lot of inside information on the roster, on injuries, on what's going on at player run practices. It's a lot of fun. So join us at Cougar Sports Insider and you can learn a little bit more about Hinkley Ropati and what he could possibly bring to the football team. So well, we got to have a football season first, man. Right. And before we jump into that, even because with everything that's going on, so I think I know you talked about this on the board a while ago, but I just want to make sure people know it's official that Danny Jones is no longer in the program. Right. Um, I don't know that I ever saw that officially publicly announced anywhere, but he's no longer on the website. Um, but something interesting going on too that if and something to watch um, is what Terrence Fall's situation is in terms of getting on campus. So the Terrence Fall was originally he was born in France and then his family moved to the United States. Um, he is so I don't know what the situation is in family. I don't know if you know if he has an American passport or not. He he is his family is still in France. He lives with a sponsor family in California. That's what I thought. And so, so I believe it's still French citizenship, and he's here basically on a temporary student visa. Right. So with in order to have a student visa, you have to be taking at least one class that is a normal in-person class at your university. So if BYU were to go 100% online during this semester, or they announce like, oh, there's no football, you have to go online or whatever, then he would have to leave the country unless they change something, which to me, if you're on a student visa and you're already here and you're living here, then to make you go back when it's not your, it's out of your hands, that's pretty asinine to me. Like I understand saying if you're not here yet and you're going to, this is going to be your first year, then wait and just do it online from there, whatever. But so that is some another roster tidbit to monitor as we are up in the air. But the big decision and news coming out today is we got two things. One, the Ivy League has decided that they will not be playing any fall sports, not just football, and hoping, pushing towards the spring. And number two, the Big Ten, word on the street at the Big Ten is that they are planning on a 10-game conference-only schedule. So what are your thoughts about that? I think that these will, the Big Ten is supposed to have a meeting tomorrow, support purportedly, and will be making that decision rather quickly. I think the Ivy League is the first domino to fall and everything else is going to follow. And I don't think we're going to get football in the fall anymore. Yeah, you know, I, I kind of think so too. And we talked about this 
on the message board today on our weekly VIP chat, and I, I said something very similar to that statement. And our subscribers, we have awesome subscribers that in a lot of times are, are, are more educated than I am on certain topics with, with sports and college athletics. And they were really quick to point out how different the need for college football is in the Ivy Leagues versus, you know, a, a regular, you know, BYU or the University of Utah. And that's true, right? I mean, the Ivy Leagues aren't dependent on the revenue generated by, uh, by football like these other schools are. But I think that, oh man, I mean, colleges just aren't known for being trendsetters. You know what I mean? College athletics, the NCAA, like they kind of just follow what the trend is. And I think the Ivy League set a trend. And I don't know if it will happen immediately, but I do think schools will follow suit. If you look back to basketball, it was the Ivy League who was the first school or the first conference rather to come out and say, hey, we're not going to play our conference championship tournament. We're going to cancel it. We're done. And it was a little bit, I don't know, it, it wasn't received really well at the time. Uh, it was met with some pushback, but then it was less than 48, 72 hours later that every other conference had followed suit. I don't know that it's going to happen that fast. I do think that the Power Five conferences and some of the, you know, the Mountain West, the American, they are desperate to have a football team They are, or a football season. Uh, I, in talking with some people today in and around BYU, um, if there's no season, I mean, even BYU, that's a very fiscally responsible school. They're in a very good position uh, relative to every, you know, some of these other schools in the Western United States. If there's no football season, you're talking a recovery that's five years, 10 years to recoup that revenue and get back on the same financial footing that you're on right now. This isn't, this isn't something that you just recoup in a year. Like this is a big deal and it really is a big deal for some of these other schools. So I think these schools are going to push and try to have football, but I think that liability comes down or I, I think that liability ends up playing a big role. Now that was another topic that was talked about on our message board today. I didn't know this about our message board until a few weeks ago that we have like 15, 20 lawyers that are actively posting and I love it. They keep me on my toes. And if I say words like liability, they're very quick to point out that uh, I don't have enough data or enough uh, circumstance or whatever to actually get, uh, if, you know, if, we were, if somebody were to sue a school because of COVID-19 liability, there's probably not enough there that that case actually goes to court and ends up in my favor. But when I say liability, I mean liability from a bigger perspective, not just legal liability, but PR and you know everything that goes with that. It, I look at a school like the University of Houston. Houston did not test all of their athletes when they came back to campus last month. They only tested athletes who had, um, who had, who were showing symptoms of COVID-19. Well, like less, I don't know, like two weeks later, they had to shut down again. Two, three weeks later, they had to shut down everything because they had this crazy breakout of COVID-19. And it was pretty easy I mean, for the public, for a lot of people to look and be like, well, yeah, you had no idea who had it. You didn't test anybody. You just tested, you know, a, a very small percentage of everybody who you brought back to campus. And of course it was going to spread. People who didn't know they had it, had it. You allowed them to play. You should have tested everybody. And other schools in the American Athletic Conference and other schools, even within Texas, like SMU, tested everybody when they brought them back. And so if something catastrophic were to happen with some of those University of Houston players, I don't know 
that there's enough there to say that Houston is liable in a court of law, but in the court of public opinion, Houston looks awfully negligent. And I don't think that any school is going to want to be that bold trendsetter that says, hey, we think this is low risk. These athletes aren't going to die. Look at the numbers, the statistics. We think this is going to be okay for the vast majority of student athletes. We're going to take that chance and run with football. If other schools like the Ivy League or other conferences start to make big decisions, it's going to be a domino effect and everybody's just going to fall in line. I hope that the Ivy League isn't the first one that sets that or sets off that chain reaction, but I'm afraid that they will. I think it will take another week or two, but ultimately I think that other schools follow suit. Maybe not cancel the season outright, maybe delay it. and It'll probably start with a month delay then maybe a two month delay. But I, I think that this is a sign of things to come. I, I agree. And I think, you know, it's a lot harder. If everybody was on board and, everyone is playing then in the court of public opinion you can say all these schools are stupid whatever but when you have the ivy league already shut it down you know people even though it's sports they say well it's the ivy league they're smart and they know what they're doing the ivy league shut it down now you have to justify how you looked at the same exact data and all the same you have the, all the same information available to you and came to the opposite conclusion that the ivy league went to that's a lot harder in that court of public opinion to you know a pr of what you're going to make that look like and so i think yeah i think we're going to see other things fall down we've heard word out of a couple pac-12 programs um you know that the pac-12 is leaning towards a spring season as well and there have been some mention of that to some players within those programs and it's you know things are it's really looking like we are not going to get football in the fall right or wrong whatever you know the statistics be damned of what the reality of COVID is for an 18 to 22 year old physically fit young person, you know, and I think college football, right? I mean, I think that the NFL can still happen. It's a little bit of a different environment, paid athletes. Sure. They are, can afford a bubble scenario. They can afford better hotels, whatever. Right. Right. But if, if student athletes are playing college football, they still got to go to school. They live on campus. Like it's a very different animal. And I do think we'll see football this fall, but I don't know that we're going to see college football this fall. Well, and a big issue with it in kind of the non-COVID related issue with college sports right now is the name, name image likeness legislation that's getting pushed through in multiple states and being introduced to Congress at a federal level. And, you know, what is the NCAA going to do? Players wanting to get paid for what they are doing because they realize, you know, yes, 50, 60 years ago, even like 30 years ago, it was very much, you are playing, you know, usually players stayed close to home, you played for school pride and you were happy to get a scholarship. But that was before ESPN was cutting $50 million checks to every school in the Big 10 and saying, hey, this is, you know, or Fox, I guess, for the Big 10 and saying, you know, we're paying every school in this league $50 million and your coaches are making $12 million and all these things where, you know, there's a lot more money in this now and it is past the level of amateurism and so if people are already you know that's already a concern and like you said if it is a professional thing where you can say we're going to pay to build this bubble whatever but schools are already operating in the red they're way over leveraged they don't have the money and it's really hard to say hey yes you are a student athlete you are an amateur this is for fun just because you love our school and it is you know it's this is 
a glorified club of you get to be an ambassador for our school and get a free education, but you have to come do this. Otherwise we're going to go bankrupt, even though we make our athletic department makes $75 million a year. That's a lot harder to justify, you know, in terms of are these players actually amateurs versus should they be getting paid to some extent beyond it? Or at least, I mean, I don't think they already do get paid because they do get a living stipend for room and board. So close to all of their expenses are covered at every P5 school at minimum. But, you know, being able to monetize their success within college athletics is, you know, a huge issue. And I think this builds on top of that. Um, yeah, I, I think you're right. It's going to be a big problem. And, and I think that it's short-sighted to think that this argument, not the argument, but the, the, the issue at hand is really related solely to COVID. You're, you're spot on, Garrett, that whatever decision happens now has huge ramifications for the NIL stuff down the road. It's going to be really hard to argue we have to play and then argue, well, we, we don't need to pay you because it doesn't matter. You're already paid. It's going to be really tough. And I, I just think that this, man, it, it just sets up so many different uh, arguments, so many different uh, legislation pieces that get passed. I mean, it's going to be a big deal, and it, it's going to be a big deal for far beyond just this college football season. So I think we were already kind of trending this way of, you know, eventually there being some another split between, um, you know, P5 and G5, and the P5 conference is breaking off and doing their own thing. Do you think this could spark it? Because I think we've become accustomed to whatever the logical sane thing is for the NCAA to do, you can count on them to do the exact opposite, right? And yeah. so I think, you know, as we look at this with, you know, is this where the P5 schools say, you know what, screw it. We have the money. We can't afford to play our players something. We can't afford to have some type of season. And we're just going to break off from the NCAA and we don't care anymore like we're not going to do our thing and it actually in terms of a championship it wouldn't matter because the ncaa does not award an fbs championship i don't know if people know that that the college football playoff is an exhibition that the ncaa has signed an agreement with but the ncaa does not award a college football national champion at the highest level so yeah they could say screw that there too and it's not like you know, there's a tournament. I mean, if the P5 schools, even if there was, if they left and said, nope, we're doing our own tournament, everyone would be like, okay, that's the national championship. We don't care what everyone else does. Like, that's the national champion. Right. And I think it's going to be really interesting. Now, I want to be clear. I don't have any inside information here. This is purely my speculation on some, you know, on things. Some of it is based off of information that we've heard, and some of it is based off the same information that everybody has read, right? Uh, but I I think it's going to be really interesting to see what happens because even at the P5 level, if there's no football this fall or if it's delayed or if fans can't attend, it's going to impact P5 schools as much as anybody. There are schools like Cal and like Washington State that are running at such a deficit that they won't be able to overcome this. Oregon State would be in a world of hurt even if football UCLA. UCLA yeah. just got dropped by Under Armour from a huge deal. And that's a, one of the bigger brands in the country. It's the most overrated brand in the country, but it is a bigger brand. Right. And I look at a school like Stanford that just cut 11 sports today. And we can argue about whether that matters, really, because they were already – they had 36 in varsity sports. I mean, it was a ton. They still have um, six more than BYU does after the cut. BYU only has 19. Right. 
So they have a ton of varsity athletics. And so the cut, we can argue whether it's really related to COVID or related to we just don't want to do this anymore. But what their athletic director came out and said later in the afternoon after their initial release was that if football is canceled, their deficit goes from $25 million this year to $50 million. It doubles. So even a school like Stanford that can just go to the guys who founded Google and say, hey, we need a donation, uh, even they are running at a deficit, at, at a pretty substantial deficit, and at a deficit that would be doubled in the events football doesn't happen. So this is going to have, if there's no football or if the economics of football change drastically, it's going to be such an interesting fallout. So when it comes to will that lead to an expedited separation between P5 and G5 schools, maybe, but I think more than that, it's going to be a survival of the fittest because I think that there are going to be some P5 schools that don't make it. There are going to be some G5 schools or a school like BYU that they might be able to to work through this. They might be able to to stick it out and hang through and deal with the financial, you know, the, the, the financial hardship for a year or two or five, but they'll be able to to make it last. I think it's interesting to look at a, a school like BYU. The church certainly could bail them out, you know, if it were if it became an issue and football was canceled for BYU this year, and we'll talk a little bit more about how that is maybe more likely for BYU than it is for other schools. If football was canceled and BYU found themselves in a really tough economic spot, the church certainly has the funds to bail out the athletic program. Would they do it? Would they do it or would they look at it and say, okay, we're not going to take church member funds and build this athletic department. You guys have been self-sustaining for forever. We're not going to write you a bailout check right now. This is church funds. It has a higher purpose that is not college athletics. Does the church just walk away and say at that point, look, we're done. We're done with sports. Here's your basketball team. I don't think so, but they could, right? I mean, they've done it at other smaller BYU schools. Does this become the catalyst that ends up in that kind of a scenario? I think I think there's enough money in the tech sector alone of Utah County to keep that from happening. And there would be some negotiations and things that needed to happen and figure out, you know, like coaches taking pay cuts and shutting things down and figuring out. I mean, I don't know if you just say like, hey, we don't need to, don't have to pay for scholarships if none of these players are enrolled from school. Everyone drop out of school for a semester, like whatever, <laughs> you know, you get creative and you find money to do it. But I, I think in that scenario, if between, you know, if they're whatever the shortfall was, if they said, okay, we've got these donations for X amount, we'll do some kind of drive and people, there's another BYU fan set and every Every BYU fan who's yapping their mouth all day on Twitter, like the rest of us, pitched in 50 bucks and be fine, right? And then sure, plus you sure. have the big number donors. And, you know, there are also the for-profit entities that the church has investments in that they do pay taxes on, whatever. And part of that, you know, from the church's investment portfolio could be extending a interest-bearing line of credit to the university, you know, where it's saying, okay, like over the next five or this is a 10-year note that you're going to pay, we're going to lend you the two, $5 million, whatever. And you're going to pay this over the next five years, whatever it is. And, you know, something could be worked out like that. But like you said, it's, I do not think that the church will never just hand over a check just to, for the sake of handing over a check, you know, and to bail out what is a self funding entity within the university. You know, whereas other schools are collecting mandatory student fees, 
they're getting tax money. You know, wherever where BYU is, you know, the probably the most fiscally responsible athletic department in the country, where they are completely separated from. Well, I guess Stanford mentioned that they are as well that they operate as their own entity, but they are, you know, getting all of this money coming in and they have to operate under their own umbrella and they do not get any money from the school. In fact, they return money to the university every year. And so, which is ultimately, that's how all of these should be run. And you should not be running, if you can't run a five, like if you can't run an athletic department without running a $5 million deficit at a public school to where you need taxpayers who don't give, you know, two craps about your school to bail you out, you shouldn't have an athletic department, you shouldn't be run that way. But it got into this arms race where everyone is doing it now to keep up. But if nobody would have, like if people would just let, let that die out and nobody would have gotten on that train, we'd be in a much better place right now. Yeah. It's going to be interesting to see what happens because there's so many schools that are in that situation. Uh, a school like Alabama, they are a huge boon to the economy of Tuscaloosa. So if they need a tax bailout, uh, the taxpayers are going to pay that bailout because it makes sense not only for football fans, but for the economy of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Uh, Utah State University and Logan, I don't think those taxpayers are going to agree to that bailout if that comes down to it. They got into the arms race as well. They've done some stadium renovation, renovations. They've done big weight room renovations. They've done a lot of different things. They've got a big name at their, you know, coaching the team now, and they've started to pay their coaches more money. If it comes down to it and they miss out on revenue, I don't know that the uh, residents of the state of Utah are going to really jump at we've got to bail out Utah State. I, I just don't I don't know if that's going to happen. And there's not much of an argument to be made that they're a huge boon to the economy of Logan, Utah. Uh, they are a essentially a commuter school up there in Logan, Utah. It's going to be really tough. And I think that is the is kind of the the scenario that so many different schools are going to be facing is Oregon State, right? Are they worthy of a bailout if it comes down to that? I don't know. You know, Oregon, absolutely. Oregon State, I don't know. Washington, definitely. Washington State, probably not. And depending on what these schools are able to do, it's going to just be really fascinating to see, even at the P5 level, who who makes it out. And so I think that the division is going to happen but I don't know that the division is going to be P5 and G5 as we know it today. I think it's going to be you were able to survive financially without a football season or with a delayed football season. You're officially a half, and then they rework the system at that point. Maybe speaking, none of these schools shut down, but that's my thought. Speaking of Washington State, did you see the thing yesterday about them with their incoming students? So, <laughs> yes. Washington State – which nobody wants to go to Pullman, as is if they if anybody wants to go to Pullman, it's because they want to go get drunk and party away from their mom, and they didn't get in to the University of Washington. So that's why they drove to the other side of the state to go live on the Palouse. But the <laughs> Washington State posted that if you are a fresh incoming freshman and you are going to live in student housing, which I'm, I don't know if they require incoming freshmen to live in student housing or not, they're forcing you to sign a thing saying that even if because of COVID, the school has to change and go completely online, you will still be financially responsible for the room and board, even if they send you home two weeks into the semester. And it's so stupid. And they also, they charge students $400 to go to freshman orientation, which is mandatory. But instead of having, you know, party, dance, whatever big 
event freshman orientation. That is also that is going to be online. So they're start charging students four hundred dollars to go to an online freshman orientation. Yeah, that's college is a scam. Like, go be a plumber or an electrician. It's not worth it. Yeah, that's so stupid. So stupid. Uh, speaking of the Pac-12, Washington State, uh, the Pac-12, they, they made headlines several weeks ago when they mentioned that they might go to a conference-only schedule. That is picking up a lot of steam. Today, news broke that the Big Ten is considering the same thing. Uh, like most BYU fans, I saw those two pieces of information and quickly realized that's six of BYU's games. We've already talked about the North Alabama game probably not happening. That would leave BYU with five games scheduled without the Big Ten, without the or the Pac-12, and then without North Alabama. They're down to five games. What is BYU's schedule going to look like? If it happens, it's going to be we're going to unfortunately see UMass again because that's what we're going to have to do. But so, I mean, running down the list, what we're talking about here with that is Utah, Michigan State, Arizona State, Minnesota. So the entire month of September, gone. And then also have North Alabama probably not happening, and then Stanford to close out the season. So those are the six games you were talking about. And then they also announced today that the NIU game is being moved from SeatGeek Stadium in Chicago to be back on campus in at Northern Illinois. Um, so, I mean... Which was an interesting move. I mean, it, it makes sense to move it off of the probably expensive uh, stadium that's not going to have any fans and back on campus. But I thought it was interesting that it was, hey, we're going to move this game back to campus and not, hey, we're going to cancel this game outright. That seemed encouraging for a minute at least. But it'll be interesting to see if the MAC goes to a conference-only schedule at one point. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know what's going to happen with that. But I mean, if you're realistically looking at other options, I mean, so there's outside of Notre Dame, whatever happens, if the ACC goes to a conference only schedule, they're going to include Notre Dame in that. I don't, I think that is definitely would happen. And then you have, unless they can't make it work. So maybe BYU gets one game with them, like in Vegas or something like that. Um, but you know, so then you're left with the other FBS independents. I mean, unfortunately, it's not 1985 where there were 30-plus FBS independent teams. So we're stuck with playing Liberty, UConn, UMass, and Army. I like Army. I like Army. BYU's never played Army. I want them to play Army because I enjoy games against the academies, whatever. So what are you going to do? It's, oh, and New Mexico State. So those are the five other independent teams. So we're going to play a home-and-home, which New Mexico State and Liberty did. They played a home-and-home home last season against each other. And so it's, we're going to go to Las Cruces and back to UMass. Like we did. I mean, that at that point, you're playing New Mexico State, UMass, and UConn are FCS-level teams. At that point, I'd rather play Weber State and SUU and save on the travel if they're still hanging around not doing anything. Like, I don't know if the – I mean, at that point, are you saying BYU gets buy games? And even if the Mountain West says we're going to do a conference-only thing, then you say, okay, well, Wyoming, well, you need money. We'll give you half a million dollars to come play in Provo. Is that like – are they going to go for that? Or they and, say, and would would ESPN go for that? I mean, does BYU even have the money to to, to have buy games like that? You know, it's... name it after somebody. It will be have the Qualtrics <laughs> Classic featuring BYU and Colorado State, and then there we will go. have the Domo Casserole Dish Bowl with BYU and Boise State. 
<laughs> That's what it's going to have to be. It's going to be fascinating. Uh, I've reached out to some contacts that I have uh, at Notre Dame. Um, so far, I mean, it's just it's so much speculation right now, and it changes so fast. I mean, even a week ago, we we sat with the Ute Zone Blockcast podcast guys, and we talked about how it seemed like football was going to happen. And then one week later, it's like, ah, nope, no way. I mean, so things happen so quickly right now with all this COVID stuff. If somebody came out tomorrow and said that they had a vaccine that was ready to go and testing was going well, maybe it changes the entire outlook of this. So we got to be careful not to talk in absolutes like we know what's going to happen because nobody does. But, man, it looks bleak right now. There's no question about it. It looks bleak. You know, we will maybe get a chance to go undefeated, though, if that schedule happens where we play. That's true. And you put it on a banner and in 2030, you know, recruits that are like six years old right now, they don't care. They're just going to see an undefeated banner. You know, this may not be the worst thing to ever happen to BYU football. And and really a crappy schedule and an undefeated season. That's kind of what gave BYU a national championship. You mean to tell yeah. me that when we were playing in a Mac level conference, running the table every year, it wasn't uh, or coming close to running the table for a five year stretch. I mean, I'm not saying, I'm just saying. You know, I, I feel you on that. The, so, yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. If it moves to the spring. So with all of this really kind of – go ahead. So I was going to say, with this moving to the spring, the other issue is campus facilities. Of you know, Because if you need fans to come back to make it work or even just things like in smaller towns, usually the schools are contracting with the local police department for security and things like that. Parking is an issue. You know, if it gets to the point where you're trying to play a baseball game, a basketball game, and a football game all at the same time, that's going to cause logistic issues on campus. So it's not so cut and dry of just punt this to the spring. There's a lot of things to work out. And then at that point, you would the season would be totally different because if Clemson is supposed to be playing in the spring, Trevor Lawrence and Justin Fields, they're not playing for Clemson and Ohio State. They're doing they're their prep already, and they're looking forward to getting paid. And so mm-hmm. it would be a very different scenario for pretty much every school and it would be a mess and it's not so cut and dry. But I, one interesting thing about the big 10 um, kind of the, the proposal that they were talking about today was that they're planning on like a 14 week season and they're only going to schedule one week at a time. And so they are wanting to do basically bake in four bye weeks in case they need to shut it down or a team and they're going to say, okay, these two teams are good. Like you have to play everybody at some point over the next 14 weeks. If you can, this is the first week. Okay. We're going to test everyone, see what happens. Things are good. We'll move on to number two. Okay. These two teams have a breakout. So we're going to shift and flip these two teams around and you two are going to take a week off. And so that way it gives you two weeks to get over it, like whatever. And so that's kind of where the big 10 is supposedly heading. And so things will get that will, which makes sense of why, um, you know, teams are going to a conference only thing. But it is unfortunate in this case that BYU isn't independent and no way in hell should we go back to the Mountain West Conference. That's not the solution. This is not something to say, oh, this proves we should have been in the Mountain West, never gone independent. No, that's completely wrong. And, you know, like I said, 30 years ago, there were 50, there were like 25, 30 independent teams. And I think in the coming years, we will see that, especially as this falls apart, you know, because I think Texas and Oklahoma will finally be tired of bankrolling Kansas State and Iowa State. If you know, once the financials finally come to a head of this bubble popping, yeah, it's going to be a mess. With all that, with all that really 
dark and negative and pessimistic talk out of the way, let's try to talk about the defense. I mean, I know it's really hard to talk about a, each position group when there might not be a football season, but that's what we're here to do, right? And if you have listened through all of this sadness and despair and you're still with us, you deserve to talk football right now. Um, it's going to be really interesting. We talked about the coaching staff and we talked about the scheme last week. So we're not going to spend a ton of time getting into that 4-3, 4-2-5, whatever semantics you want to use. We're not going to talk about all that stuff. Let's dig into the position groups. And it's really kind of simple, really. It's, the, it's mostly the same guys that BYU had last year that are coming back this year. Uh, starting with the defensive line, I mean, obviously, going to be headlined by Kairos Tonga. Uh, Lorenzo Fawatea and Atunai Samahe are going to join Tonga and try to shore up the middle of the defensive line. On the edges, you're looking at guys like Uriah Leatawa. Alema Pilimai has switched from tight end to defensive end. He's a guy who is going to be in the mix. Uh, Devin Kapusi obviously is not in the mix. I mean, so that's a little bit of a change from last year. But beyond that, the guys are mostly the same. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what the defensive line does because the biggest change is going to be play calling and philosophy. It's not going to be new bodies and new talent. It's the same body, same talent for the most part, and they're going to be asked to do different things. And that is what will make or break the defensive line. Uh, one thing about the defensive line, that I, I found really interesting was their struggles against both the pass and the run. It was bad. I mean, it was really, really bad last year in both areas. It wasn't just against the run. It wasn't just against the pass. It wasn't just get, not getting a pass rush. It was all of the above, and it was all really bad. One thing that I, I, I highlighted in an article earlier this week on Cougarsportsinsider.com was BYU's stuff rate. So stuff rate is a stat for football outsiders. And basically what it is is it tracks the percent the percentage of runs that are stopped at or behind the line of scrimmage. And BYU was only 16, just over 16% of rush, rushing attempts against BYU were stopped at or before the line of scrimmage. That was 107th in the country. For a team that could not generate a pass rush and was so bad in, in sacks and TFLs, for them to be that bad at stuffing the run, man, no wonder BYU struggled so much. And it's that stat that's going to be the most interesting for me to watch. Everybody's talking about the pass rush, and that has to improve. But to me, I think BYU is a little bit more equipped to improve in this arena on the running game right away. They still don't have the hogs to have a 20-sack a Chase Young type of a, uh, a pass rusher. But Kairos Tonga, Lorenzo Fawatea, Achenai Samahe, they absolutely have the talent to plug up gaps and, and be an excellent run-stopping team. So and I don't know how much of that was just because, you know, when we talked about this a bit last week of, you're only bringing three guys and they're running with the tight end or any type of lead blocker, you know, you're running a duo where everyone's double teamed. And then if the linebackers are playing on their heels as it is and already in a deep set, you know, 
yeah, someone's peeling off to hit a backer, but the backer's already six yards downfield. You're not going to stop issues. So I think part of that is scheme, but really it's kind of like, okay, if you're not going to rush the passer, you got to stop. Like you got to do one of those things, right? And mm -hmm. it, it really does, you know, the defensive line just performed very poorly last year. And for all the talk of, you know, times we talked about Kairos Tonga being, you know, a NFL prospect at his size and his strength, whatever it was, you know, teams kind of, they ran away from him. He was constant. He was double taped. I think pretty much every play of the season, all but season long part of that issue with the scheme in is like, it doesn't, if you're running a three man front, like yes, Kairos Tonga is good, but he's not, and Dominic Sue at Nebraska, his senior year, good. You know, he is not that, you know, he is not Vince Wilfork good where he's going to fight off a double team, triple team and still get a tackle every time, you know. And so it's – we didn't put our best player on the defense in a position to succeed. And so that's – And we asked, of, we asked him to do something that he wasn't accustomed to doing. I mean, he is a gap shooter. That was what he was when he came to BYU, and that's what he was for the first two years at BYU. Is he was a uh, he was a a four three lineman that was a gap shooter. And then last year, in the middle of fall camp, they switched to this three four scheme, and they asked him to be a two gap defensive tackle, and that's hard to do. NFL defensive tackles can't transition like that that quickly. That is really hard to do. Vince Wilfork, you mentioned him. He was a two-gap specialist. You could not have simply said, okay, Vince, you're going to go and you're going to play in a 4-3 scheme and you're going to shoot gaps now. He would not have been able to do it. That's an NFL defensive tackle that was a two-gap specialist. But for inexplicable reasons, Kyrus Tonga was expected to go from being a gap shooter to a two-gap DT last year. And it just it, we, we saw the results. It didn't work. Hey, he did start a defensive end in the Utah game. That's true. He did, which is nuts, but he did. He's so, 350 pounds. So, the, yeah, I don't – really, the defensive line – and, I mean, it's – yes, we're talking about what they asked them to do last year, but they were not good in 2018 either, and their stuff rate was also very bad, and they were not generating any havoc um, at all in either the run or the pass. So, they – really, it's, I think, where this defense boils down to is what – are they going to take that step forward? I think the key to that – is Uriah Leatawa. He proved to be the best pass rusher on the team, and he only played like 20% of the snaps, but he led the team in pressures. And so he is the best pass rusher on the team. He's finally healthy. I think there has been some talk of what Peyton Wilgar is going to do. And if Peyton Wilgar, even if he's a, if he's a stand-up end coming off the edge as an edge rusher, I think he has the talent that he could do some nice things in the pass game and just playing down the line. Um, you know, so it's, I guess that kind of takes us into the linebackers. What do you think? How do you feel about the linebacker situation coming into this season versus last year? I feel good. Uh, BYU's moved a lot of the linebackers who were there last year. Chaz Ayu is going to be listed as a safety. Max Tooley is going to be a safety. Kavika Fanua is going to be a safety. Uh, so the, the names at the linebacker spot are different. But I'm here to tell you that Pepe Tanuvaza and Ben Bywater are the truth. Those are guys who are going to compete for playing time. Uh, even if those other three players were still playing playing linebacker, Tanuvasa and Bywater are going to push them for playing time. They are studs. Uh, so I have a ton of confidence in the linebacker group. We're not going to talk about scheme. We've talked about scheme. But that's where my, my lack of confidence really is. I, I have no doubt 
that a group of Isaiah Kapusi, Peyton Wilgar, Tanavasa, Bywater, Keenan Peely, Jackson Kapusi, those guys can play, and and they play exceptionally well in the linebacker spot. They have speed, they have size, they have athleticism. That's a really good group of linebackers. I just don't have a whole lot of confidence that they're going to be in the right spots, that they're going to be put in a position to help in the run game, that they're going to be asked to go get to the quarterback. Uh, that USF game last year, it just it's such a haunting memory that no matter how many outside runs they ran with a quarterback who was zero threat to throw the football, the linebackers were still six, seven, eight yards off the line of scrimmage all the time. And it was it was just it was embarrassing. I think that the talent is there. Those guys are talented. They're very talented players. They've just got to be asked to do the right thing. If they are, they're going to be good. And it was it's like really weird too. I mean, when we're talking about, um, you know, we had Kavika Fanua playing inside backer. He only weighs two hundred five pounds. Like he's tiny. He's not going to do well against the run, especially if you're going to play that three four where you kind of have a soft front and you're leaving an open middle, then you need a great run-stuffing linebacker to eat up space and be playing downhill. And, you know, similar to, you know, back in the day with, you know, we had Cameron Jensen, we had like guys like Markel Staffier, you know, those guys that played downhill. And that was even Brandon Ogletree was a little undersized, but he still was a good run-stuffing linebacker. We didn't have that last year. And so it's, I mean, now you, Will Gar, has that size, but all the other linebackers were relatively tiny for the position. Tanu Vasa is big enough to play that, and he kind of played that role at Navy, and so he does have experience. But, yeah, I don't – it's a similar situation where we're talking about with the D-line where they were in a weird position. It was kind of bizarre what they were asked to do, and I don't know why they made that change of pushing them to do something different. But we'll see what they do this year. And, it, I mean, from everything we've heard, they are planning to – kind of to go back to what they ran the first two, three seasons of, you know, the Kalani Satavia era of, you know, pivoting back to a four, two, five, or calling it a four, three with a hybrid, you know, that third linebacker is going to be a outside linebacker, strong safety, you know, what do you call the four, two, five or four, three doesn't really matter. But so that is really, you know, what are they going to be asked to do? Because I agree with you that the guys are there and we proved even last year that, with we had a bunch of no names going in there. We're like, okay, we got Isaiah Kafusi. He's the only linebacker we could even somewhat count on from the year before. But everybody else that came through, they all performed well, even though they did well. What they were asked to do is just kind of head scratching it. Why were they asked to do that? Yep, that's exactly right. Uh, it's a good segue into our defensive backs. Some of those linebackers who were asked to play a whole bunch of coverage have slimmed down. We already named them: Ayu, Tuli, and Fanua have slimmed down a little bit more, got back to their natural positions. Um, so let's talk about the secondary. Garrett, did you get a chance? I want to ask you a question if you didn't. Did you get a chance to read my article earlier this week, Critical Stats for Every BYU Position? I did not read that yet. Perfect. Okay. Go ahead and take a guess at what the average, uh, the average passer efficiency rating of opposing quarterbacks was who played BYU this year, all 13 games combined. What is the average passer efficiency rating? 155. Close. 141.49. That's what BYU gave up on a weekly basis. 141.49. And let me, let me put that into perspective. 
that is almost identical to what Keaton Slovis was when he played uh, when he played BYU. Now BYU beat USC. They forced three interceptions. If you remember those interceptions, uh, one came off a tip ball to Chaz Ayu to end the game, or sorry, to day, uh, Chaz Ayu tipped the ball. Dian came down with it to end the game. Peyton Wilgar made that crazy catch on one in the first half. And then the other one was a bad throw. Uh, I believe it was Isaiah Kapusi who picked it off, if I remember right. But two of those were off of deflections. Like Keaton Slovis, in his first start as a true freshman on the road, his first road start, he came out, he threw for, I think it was 248 yards on 24 of 34 passing, 298 yards, 24 of 34 passing with those three interceptions, and two of them were really kind of fluke interceptions. He played really well. That was what the average performance was for an opposing quarterback going up against BYU secondary last year. Yeah, that's on not, average. It's yeah, awful. It really was. And in, I mean, part of that is that they weren't getting, they had way too, opposing quarterbacks had way too much time to throw, which plays into it. Um, but it's, you know, the secondary, which oddly enough, I mean, the secondary, I would have put more trust in the secondary last year heading into the season than I would have the linebackers. I would have had the most trust. You figured, okay, with defense line, okay, we got, Valateo did pretty well. Mahi did decently well as a freshman. You got Tonga back as a junior. Like, Leitawa should be healthy. Okay, defensive line, that's going to be, you know, that's going to be the bedrock. Should have been the strength, right? Yeah. And then the secondary will hold its own, and we can mask up the linebackers. But really, it was kind of like they asked the linebackers to do everything, and then the secondary got left on an island, and they were doing hockey subs every three plays, pulling all four guys out, and then the defensive line, it, I mean, we're getting back into the scheme, but it's just bizarre. It is. Uh, so going into this year, that's the number I, the, the, we have to watch, right? Like BYU cannot allow a passer efficiency rating of 141.5 every game. That's a good recipe to get absolutely annihilated on the field. Um, I mean, that's what you saw, right? Like Washington game, uh, Jake Fromm was up over 200 in his passer efficiency rating in that game. Uh, Cole McDonald in the bowl game was like 180. Uh, BYU can't give up multiple games above 180 um, to opposing quarterbacks. That's just that's a death sentence. Um, BYU has the bodies to be better. I'm really excited to see Troy Warner this year. It was only six spring practices that we got to see him, but man, he looked good. He looked healthy. He looked fast. He looked aggressive. Um, he looked like the Troy Warner that that every fan thought he was going to be when he came. He's been hampered by injuries, and I don't think that people really give him enough credit for how hard he's had to work to get back. Liz Franck injuries are not easy, and for everybody, it's kind of like a Liz Franck today is like the ACL 20 years ago, that some people are able to come back in a year and they don't look really different, but other people, you know, 15, 20 years ago, people tore their ACL, and that was career-ending for some guys. Um, that was kind of what a Liz Frank is now. Uh, even a guy like Taysom Hill, every BYU fan who watched Arizona, the BYU-Arizona game in 2016, I had many, many conversations with fans about how it looked like Taysom had lost a step. Now he's in the NFL, he's doing his thing. But in 2016, he was noticeably slower and a little bit less quick coming off of that Liz Frank injury a year before. 
So Troy Warner had the same injury. He's had to work really hard. He looked absolutely great in, in spring practices. I think a big year will come from him. Uh, Chris Wilcox is back. A big year has to come from him. BYU needs Chris Wilcox more than they need anybody in the defensive secondary. And then the rest of them, it's a lot of the same names that we saw last year. It's going to be it's going to be uh, D'Angelo Mandel, Isaiah Heron, uh, Keenan Ellis is back. Uh, Hayden Livingston is going to play. BYU needs some players to step Shimon up. Willis. Shamon Willis will he be got, there. He did well considering he got thrown into action a little because of injuries a little earlier than I think the staff would have liked, but he did admirably. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be the same guys, and again, it's kind of like every other position. I think the talent is there for the group to do really, really well this year, but it's just philosophically, I, I, I still struggle. I really, really struggle. You can't expect these guys to sit in zone coverage and defend guys when you're allowing quarterbacks to have you know, 10, 12 seconds in the pocket. Buckshot Calvert in that Liberty game, I mean, he could have put the ball on the ground and tied his shoes and picked it back up and then found Antonio Gandy-Golden down the field. I mean, he he had that much time throughout that entire Liberty game. It's tough to ask. You, know, you couldn't ask Darrell Rivas to defend for that long. It's going to be – it's just it, – it's fascinating. BYU's got to do better at getting some pressure, making quarterbacks uncomfortable, and helping the secondary out. If they do that, the talent is there for the secondary to be as good and as deep as BYU has had since – 96? I mean, it's it's been about that long, I think. BYU has the athletes now to be as good as they were back then and better than they have been at any time since then. Right, and they just they need help, and that's nobody. It doesn't matter. I mean, you can even go back to what, it, what was happening with, you know, in 2006, 2007, when it was like, oh, we're starting four walk-ons in the secondary. We're going to get torched. But you do things. You can cover up one weakness. You know, on the defense, you can scheme around one weakness, but you can't cover up bad things across the board. And so if at one level, you got to have somebody, you know, to have a good, solid defense that you can count on, you know, an above average defense, you need a one above average unit of the three levels. You know, if you got the D line, the linebackers and the secondary, you need one above average unit, one good unit, and then you can mask the third, whatever it is, doesn't matter. You can math. However you flip those three, that's what you need to make things work. And I think we definitely have the talent there, but they need to get put in the right positions to be able to do it because, you know, with how long Cole McDonald had to run around and find guys open, nobody's going to cover for that long. We could have had, you know, we could have thrown out a, a Canadian defense with an extra nickel with an extra defender in the secondary and still wouldn't be able to cover that long, even if we had a six guy back there. And so it's, you know, it, we have the talent is there, but what are they going to do? And is the D line going to take the step forward, which is what needs to happen to make everything else fall into place? Yep. I mean, it really is that simple. Um, the defense has the talent to be very good. They've just got to get in the right spots. And if we, Here, this has been a good UMass, show, man. UMass and New Mexico state, that's four of our 10 games this year. We may be looking at having a top five, top, you know, top three defense. That's true. Man, this year's going to screw up every uh, like statistician, like every ESPN, FPI, all of the Phil Steele's game grader, all that stuff is going to be so screwed up because, yeah, Boise State's going to play nobody but Mountain West schools and just run Ruckshaw 
BYU is going to play New Mexico State and UMass four times and just you know put up 600 yards in each game. It's basically going to make it impossible because so if there were more if everybody was independent and was doing random schedules every year it would make grading teams like from a it would well maybe not totally if they didn't have as big of conference schedules I think if they had like five or six regular games it'd make grading teams in the thing because you'd have the comparison of okay well how did you play against these common opponents but then you'd get more of that network reaching out but like you said how do you grade the SEC when you don't have those between the 14 SEC schools each playing three non-conference FBS games other than you know they have SOCON Saturday before every week but like if you know you have those was it that 42 um, whatever 14 times three is like however many games those are like you have those and that gives you a lot of information of okay well how do you stack up against everybody else and how do you adjust you know for this based on common opponents and things like that so it is really hard and you're really, if everybody strictly goes based on, you know, what conference schedules and there's nothing like in between any leagues, you're going to be stuck with, okay, well, what were our prior assumptions based on last year and their returning production and what they did last year and their new recruits coming in and what the roster looks like and then take a guess. And yeah. it's pretty, and this entire season will be an asterisk. It will be, and it probably will be anyways. Uh, This has been a good show, Garrett, and as a reward for all listeners who are still with us through the very end of the show, uh, next week we will be meeting with Pick 6 Previews' Brett Ciencia. Uh, He puts out a preseason, I don't know, do you call it a magazine? Do you call it a book? It ends up being a digital download. I think he calls it a preseason book. Yeah, it's I mean, awesome. It's similar to an Athlon or you know the Feel Still preview. I think this is the first. I didn't buy it last year, but I purchased it this year. And let me pull it up if I can find it, because it was, um, you know, it was great. And it like it's multiple pages. We're talking, I think it's like average like eighteen hundred words per team for all sixty five. P5 teams plus BYU. So he's one of the good guys. He considers us in the club. He is. He Last year, he did not include BYU in his preseason preview. Uh, a bunch of BYU people, including myself, reached out and, and asked him to include BYU because he does such a good job with the P5 schools. And he agreed this year to put BYU in. We want to make sure that he feels the love from BYU fans. So in talking with Brett today, he has agreed a special promo code for Cougar Sports Insider subscribers. We're going to go ahead and sneak it in to Give em Hell Brigham podcast listeners as well. Use promo code BYU when you buy the Pick 6 preview, and you will get 30% off of the, off of the, the sticker price, if you will of the preseason magazine. If you've used, you know, if you've bought Phil still in the past, Phil is awesome. You know, he's widely regarded as the, the the college football Bible every year. His style is just different. He spends a lot of time talking about the past this year's magazine. I could already tell you, he's going to dig into 2017, 2018. You're maybe even get a Taysom Hill reference from 2016 and he packs it in in super small font, and he abbreviates like every word, and you have to be able to speak Phil still. And it's tough to read. It's awesome, but it's a little bit tough to read sometimes. Um, Brett 
uses full sentences, and he spends most of the time talking about the future and the upcoming season. And he kind of lets his game grader. And there are paragraphs, a regular size font, but he spends most of his time talking about projecting what's going to happen. And he lets his game grader formula and some of the statistics kind of tell the story of the past by itself. It's so it's a different style than Phil Still. I love it. Uh, this is the second or third year that I've bought a magazine. Please support him and do so with the promo code BYU for 30% off. Knocks the price down to less than 15 bucks and for just incredible content on every P5 team and BYU. And so I just pulled it up and, you know, it's got two pages for every team. So there's 161 pages on this thing, um, you know, two for every team with, you know, charts going over their schedules and he's got his game grader formula, but he looks into, you know, what has, you know, for both coordinators, what have you had, you know, on offense and defense for the last 10 years and recruiting for the last 10 years for every school. And, you know, then he's got a few pages explaining kind of what his formula is and what goes into it. And so he is projecting BYU to take that step forward that we've been talking about and to come in around, he's projecting us to come in in number 39 overall. So being a top 40 program, which is where, what the goal should be every season. And so it's, we're, we're excited to get Brett on next week. And uh, like I said, we'll put the link in, get 30% off. It drops it down to 14 bucks and, you know, go support him. He is a, he got made a Heisman voter last year because he's, you know, he's built this from the ground up of, you know, just doing previews by himself on Twitter. And he started this from the ground up and turned it into a real gig where he's making money and he is a certified Heisman voter. So we'll get him on the show. It'll be great. And uh, what else, uh, what else are we going to give hell this brief, Jeff? Man, I'm just trying to stay alive. I can't deal with any more bad college football news. So that's that's what I'm going to give hell this week. I'm going to put all of my energy. I'm going to focus on you know whatever Eastern medicine type of healing type thing I can think of, and focusing on making sure that college football happens specifically for BYU. And hopefully, it doesn't end up with UMass and New Mexico State four times. Like that's what I'm going to try to give hell this week is a whole bunch of thought and meditation into willing that to happen. I'm right there with you. All right, so, man. Been a good week. Give him hell, Garrett. Give him hell.